0: Uh, Hello, Uh, thank you all for coming to this SDR virtual symposium. Uh, My name is Lugaz Arikan and I'll be the moderator uh, today. Uh, Today we have a fantastic debate on whether non market strategies are uh, critical to overall competitive strategy. And the uh, panelists. Uh, need no introduction. We have Elena Bernard, Elizabeth Maitland, uh, Christos Pitelis, and Jonathan Doe as our experts on the topic. Uh, we'll follow the Oxford style as much as we can. And unfortunately, due to the virtual platform, we will not have the traditional eye-rolling, the, the sighing, the throwing arms in the air type of gestures, which I'm actually a big fan of. Uh, the fourth the motion camp is going to be Jonathan Doe and Helena Bernard, and against the motion camp is Christos Hospitalis and Elizabeth Maitland. Uh, unfortunately, there's going to be a little bit of a uh, change in this uh, uh, Excel uh, sheet. Uh, it's going to be, uh, let, let me briefly give you the format, uh, we will have three rounds of debates. Uh, First, start by asking the audience to vote whether they are on the uh, for the motion side or the against the motion side, and tell it the numbers in the in the chat box. Uh, after the debate, I'll ask the same question, and uh, this time the camp with the higher sway votes will win, uh, not the initial votes or the last votes. Uh, I'll keep time and make sure that the debaters not exceed their uh, time. Uh, it will be exactly eight minutes, four minutes and three minutes uh, marks. And this basically gives us about half an hour for the audience uh, to join uh, join the debate uh, t- towards the end. Uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, start. And using the, the chat feature, would you please enter your initial vote, whether you're on the far side, Or the against the motion side. Uh, While you do that, uh, we'll start with, uh, now let me get it right. Uh, Is it going to be uh, Christos? No, it's going to be, uh, who's going to first?
1: Jonathan
2: Jonathan. wants to go
0: first. Okay, Jonathan is going first. Uh, Well, good luck, you got
3: eight minutes. Thanks very much, thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. Let me just launch right in to make two main arguments about why non-market environments and non-market strategy is critical to the competitive success of firms. One practical, one scholarly or theoretical. In my view, it's quite obvious that the non-market environment, the political and social context or milieu in which business is conducted, is absolutely critical for companies to understand, evaluate and respond to. While it may be that some industries and some companies must respond in a more immediate fashion, or in a stronger fashion, I think non-market environments and non-market strategies are important to all companies, not just those that are highly regulated or those that face a lot of government pressure or oversight. Non-market strategies are designed to respond to the pressures and the uh, influence that governments and social actors place on firms. In my particular area, international management, I believe non-market environments and strategies are especially salient because multinational firms face unique liabilities and restrictions and constraints as they do business across the multiple jurisdictions, the geographies, the multiple platforms and institutional environments in which they operate. These firms must balance both home and host country pressures and integrate uh, and respond to them in in a simultaneous and coordinated fashion. And these pressures are not just from governments, they're from many, many social actors such as NGOs, they're from international governmental agencies like the UN, the World Bank, IMF, and many, many others. So what form do these non-market strategies take? A, A wide range of forms like lobbying, networking, intelligence gathering, political donations, et cetera, et cetera. I just looked at the newspaper this morning, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times, and I saw some of the following headlines. Canadian government clears border after trucker blockade. ATV industry rift exposes US divide on China tariffs. Trial for former Goldman Sachs banker in Indonesia corruption case. US faults China for failing to meet purchase targets under 2020 trade deal. Macron bets on nuclear power to fight climate change and on and on and on. I need only look at one day's newspaper headlines to convince me that the non-market environment and non-market strategies is critical to firms. Now, from a conceptual or theoretical point of view, in international strategy, international management, especially, scholars have been interested in the non-market environment from, its very, from the very inception of this field. From Heimer to Ray Vernon to Susan Strange, John Stofford, Steve Cobran, Ted Moran, all of the fathers and mothers of our grandfathers and mothers of our discipline have focused on the non-market environment. And I think in their 1994 AMR, Bodwin and Brewer said it well, when they stated that the analysis of international business political behavior requires, not suggests, not invites, but requires consideration of what may be called organizational strategies regarding the effective development and use of action structures and processes toward the non-market environment. In a recent review by Pay et al in the Journal of International Business Studies, those authors identified 367 articles since 2000 That have focused on not the non-market environment generally, non-market strategy generally, but the international non-market environment, the international non-market strategic context. They looked at a whole wide range of practices that have been explored by scholars. They looked at multinational research and corporate political activity like the internationalization of state-owned enterprises, managing multinational host government relations, host government political institutions, political risk. One of the biggest areas in, in global strategy uh, when it regards with regard to the non-market environment. They looked at an increasingly important area of non-market research, corporate social responsibility and sustainability, such as standards, CSR reporting, NGOs, supply chains, human rights, corporate citizenship, philanthropy, you name it. They looked at the integration and the coordination between corporate political activity on the one hand, and strategic corporate social responsibility on the other, something that firms are increasingly doing and scholars are increasingly exploring. Finally, they suggested four promising areas for future research in the non-market strategic environment globally, such as greater attention to the micro-level processes and strategies of the non-market environment, greater attention to global macro-level processes, greater attention to the complementarity between these two levers, corporate political action, and strategic corporate social responsibility, and also incorporating multi-actor global issues, those that involve a whole wide range of potential stakeholders uh, and actors. And so to conclude my opening comments, I believe that non-market strategy, and our team uh, submits that non-market strategy, is not only important and critical, it is inextricably and inexorably linked to the competitive strategy of firms. Thank you.
0: Perfect. And we've got two minutes to spare on that one. Uh, Next, uh, you got uh, Christos, right?
4: Yes, thank you very much, Lucas. Thank you very much. My key proposition in this uh, presentation today is that given the institutional regulatory context, given the right institutional regulatory context, the business of business should be doing business. More narrowly, given positive innovation fostering competition, the business of business should be doing business. Uh, the line, the lineage of this argument, I'm using, I'm relying on a number of scholars, uh, some of them less known and some of them much more known to IB scholarship. I start with a the cost theorem, which suggests that given zero transaction costs, the firm and the state are redundant. That is, frictionless market transactions will lead to Pareto efficient resource allocation. I find this to be very broad in that it presupposes zero transaction cost, hence no opportunity of time, no opportunity cost of time, and zero strategic behavior, which is more stringent than zero opportunism. It is also incentive incompatible in that it incentivizes strategic behavior. I then move to Friedman on, social, on corporate social responsibility. Friedman has famously claimed that the business of business should be to be doing business. In Capitalism and Freedom, he quoted that there is one and only social responsibility of business to use the resources its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profit, so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. This is a right toll order, I observe, in that it raises the question, who sets the rules of the game, how common is open and free competition, as well as it presupposes the absence, how common is the absence of deception and or fraud. I move on to Hayek on planning and competition. Hayek famously observed that governments should be doing nothing, no planning, except planning for competition. However, the rules of the game and planning for competition entail sustainability. And this is economic, social, and environmental. This is much more aligned with longer time horizons than afforded by short-term shareholder value pressures. I move on to Stephen Heimer, who is much better known in our field. His twin laws of increasing firm size and the correspondence principle, which suggested that over time, firms are increasing their size and that over time, the correspondence principle or law suggests that the vertical specialization division of labor within companies is transplanted to a vertical division of labor between countries and also between peoples. He's also suggested that collusion between multinational companies, m and strong states, uh, as well as the elites of uh, developing countries is actually undermining sustainability and efficiency and innovation fostering uh, outcomes. He he, he did not question that innovation is fostered, but rather the direction of innovation and whom does it serve. Penrose discussed the efficiency and power of big business and she observed that the process of growth is efficient. However, the state is inefficient, hence requiring government regulation to assure positive net outcomes. Finally, I mentioned the recent work of Zingales, Luis Zingales, which actually suggested that in most cases, market power is morphing into political power. Now, this is a group of people who range from very, very, uh, uh, often extreme range of opinions. One might say from the, 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 the left to the right, but they all agree on basically that, What is important is fair and open competition, that sustainability requires that the internalization of all negative externalities, the elimination of regulatory capture and corruption, including conflicts of interest embedded in business models, and relatedly, contributing to maximum innovation, um, to maximum contribution of innovation, compatible share of taxes, that help finance public goods. Profiting from environmental damage and socioeconomic deprivation is hardly sustainable. Stakeholder capitalism through tax avoidance is a misnomer. My conclusion is that non-market strategies are the result of institutional failure and help create institutional failure. I provide 10 reasons for this and I'm sure that more reasons could be added. Please stop me when I think I have moved uh, a lot because I could uh, cover some of these things later. But in brief, non-market strategies lead to unrelated diversification of organizational capabilities, additional investments and and costs like, for example, the corruption in traditional cooperative firms, incentives to pay low taxes and or pass the cost on to the consumer, Relative power save distortion of competition, e.g. vis-a-vis small and medium-sized enterprises. Elizabeth will elaborate more on this. Lower incentives to innovate because of the cozy situations created. Lobbying regulatory capture and corruption. Collusive behaviors between big business and big government. Internalization or abdication of state responsibilities erosion of key comparative advantages of governments, which is legitimization and raising taxes, of course, to fund uh, publicly needed infrastructure and gradually a fiscal crisis of the state and higher demand for business non-market practices, which leads to a vicious circle whereby basically the government abdicates its role. My conclusion is that yet the rules of the game and competition right with their non-market strategies in order to optimize on the net benefits, costs, calculus of any operations. None of these questions, these are very important. There are efficiency, extensive uh, benefits of multinationals discussed. The point is not that. The point is whether you maximize these benefits by actually having non-market strategies or not having market strategies. And my suggestion is that from a normative point of view, if we get the rules of the game and competition right, we should wither non-market strategies. The lima is that under fair and open international competition, nationality should not matter either, except in leveling the playing field by precisely offsetting any liability of foreigners or assets, therefore, e.g. discriminatory protection afforded by host country to local Uh, to domestic firms. Still, however, it feels to me that it's best to fight discriminatory practices than to try to offset them potentially in so doing exacerbating both government failure and market failure. I will stop here and I have a number of other things that I could discuss at the second phase of the discussion. Thank you.
0: Perfect. Thank you. 30, uh, 30 seconds to spare. And now we're going to go to Helena. And things are going really gentle, very very, uh, very kind towards, towards each other. I'm not seeing a lot of uh, um, fights going on right now, but uh, hopefully it will happen. Thank you, Helena, you've got 10 um, minutes.
5: I, I'm not sure if I should try and fight or try and be a, a lady, <clears throat> but let me start. I can't agree more with Jonathan that we have to have an integrated package of firm strategies that include um, engaging with a wider, wider social and business milieu. And in fact, if anything, I am puzzled from my vantage point at the existence of a term "non-market strategy," <clears throat> a single term to capture the range and the nuances of actions that firms engage in. Um, we know that as scholars are continuing to work in this area, they are identifying corporate social responsibility, corporate political activity, sometimes overlapping. But I'd like to give some examples to, to demonstrate how the, the issues that are addressed by non-market strategies are actually fundamental strategies that firm use to, to, to exist. In South Africa, and I will not use international examples because I do think it introduces complexity around liabilities of foreigners and so, but even inside a country, um, firms that want to open a mine need to apply for regulatory approval. Uh, Part of the approval is the development of a social plan. The plan outlines how our Um, is the how's the mine going to to compensate the community for 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 the land Um, this is the firm acting as a regulated entity it's fairly standard it builds hospitals and schools and roads in in the course of 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 doing this and having the, the the permission to operate because it is governed however as soon as it starts to actually operate in a typically rural area, the the capacity of government to govern is extremely limited. Um, It cannot be a partner for or a counterpart to the mine, and de facto the mine becomes the government. Um, It is responsible for service delivery and there are accounts of mining managers being approached by municipal leaders to say, can you help with X or Y or what should we do? Except South Africa is a violent society. Mining is historically a a flashpoint. When unrest starts to happen and the unrest is very often quite violent, then you have to have government be the entity that deals with it. This is an urgent situation. Mining offices are burning down. Vehicles are burning down. And they need to find a way of engaging the government to come and to, to once again become governed by the government. So, so the whole assumption of non-market strategies is that there's, it's possible to have a clear divide between those who are trying to create a profit and those who are governing. And in practice, this is not what we see. I'll give another example because one of the the differentiators is sometimes that the market strategies deal with your customers and your products and so. And I know of a a developer who developed a a shopping center very close to a very poor area. He spoke to the local community um, to find out what products would they want, what opening hours would work for them. This was really a community of people who were surviving on social grants. They got the equivalent of about $25 a month. And, and this shopping center would, would mean that they didn't have to pay 10% of the of their monthly grant to, to travel simply to where they were procuring the goods that they were eating. None of this feels like like a non-market strategy. This is marketing 101. They are talking to their customers, finding out the customer needs. He did mention that he had to operate with very low profit margins um, because uh, he was serving a poor community. And there was a not so hidden warning. It was understood by the community that if there were um, theft and, and, and issues, he would have to close. So none of this so far feels as if it's a, a non-market strategy. It's equivalent to a limited warranty that you would get when you, when you buy an appliance. Except last July, South Africa went up in flames. In, in a week, we had more than 3,000 stores burnt down, big shopping mall chains, the equivalent of Tesco's, almost 400 shopping malls. 300 people were killed, probably more, Um, and this shopping center owner in an area that was quite prone to, to violence, these were people with very little to lose, went to his customers and said, how are we going to make sure that we keep them all standing? And they agreed that they would uh, get snipers who would sit on the roof of the shopping mall and who would safeguard it by shooting, um, warning shots or shots to injure or shots to kill, depending on the level of threat as people approached the mall. Because of the violence, the police was paralyzed. They were not able to do. So I guess this is a non-market strategy. I guess this is not what you learn in Marketing 101, but at what point did his engagement with his customers and his sense of, of, we have different goals, but we're in this together. At what point did it start becoming market or non-market and not simply competitive strategy? I'll give one more example from that period one of the, the, the affected firms, I mean, everybody was affected, but Samsung's warehouse was completely emptied. It was looted. And a few weeks later, we got a notification in the newspaper that Samsung um, appliances, high-definition TVs and stuff, are remotely activated and deactivated. And Samsung had remotely deactivated all the um, serial numbers that had were supposed to be in the warehouse. And the reason why this notification came out was to say to people who had legitimately bought some of that stock that had been in the warehouse to go to a local Samsung office with proof of purchase and the serial number. Now, this is a development of a product. This is potentially product innovation. But it's not a a product feature that was ever made apparent to anybody what it was about um, or that it existed. It was clearly designed by Samsung in case of theft, in case of of developing a a situation, developing where where they needed to to make the, the piece of equipment valueless. But should we categorize this as market or non-market? And it really feels to me that what this is, is competitive strategy. And that and that the construct of non-market strategy, even trying to differentiate this as something without which one can operate, um, is a construct that comes from a world okay. where things work like they should.
0: Let me stop you here for the first round. Uh, we need to go to Elizabeth now. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you, Ilgoth, and thank you, our Prime Speakers, and welcome to everyone. Um, This is is an interesting debate in the sense that, to some extent, we haven't actually defined our, our core terms. And as someone who sort of works in IB and comes from a very NIE background, one of the things that I think I would put up front to begin with is that we know that every location has a very unique institutional environment. We know that environment has its own power dynamics, its own actors who seek to ultimately influence and control how rules are set and how they enforce and now those differences and similarities come from history. And I think when we talk about non-market strategies we typically have drawn in the literature a distinction between corporate political actions which seek to change the power dynamics in setting and enforcing those rules and then something I think which is slightly different, and that's corporate social responsibility. And there's been a lot of debate about where that that boundary lies between the two, and in fact, where the boundary lies in much of CSR between what might be thought as market activities and non-market activities. And Ilgarth gave Christos and I the sort of charge that we were really to argue that firms can outperform their rivals if they strictly apply market mechanisms. And for me, I think that therefore requires us to really think about, well, what do we mean by market mechanisms and therefore market strategy? And the arguments put in the literature are very much this is about how the firm sets its price, how the firm determines its product quality, its input decisions and where it sells its output. And I think when we draw those sorts of distinctions, we really need to think about this in terms of really those are decisions about it's value creating strategies. How does it create value? How does it capture return on that value? And how does it sustain that for a particular period of time? So we might think of market mechanisms really as those where the firm is directly making decisions in the setting of its strategy. So it's trade-off decisions in terms of how it creates value, captures it and sustains it. So it's direct value-adding activities versus what might be thought about as actions that are there to shape the dynamics of power within that institutional environment. And I think those are very different. That's trying to affect something other than your value creation strategies. And so to some extent, I guess I'll start by arguing that the language of market mechanisms in the market is a little misleading because really a market is just a form of exchange. It's just one of the ways that we organize exchange and we know that most firms use a whole series of different contractual arrangements to organize exchange. And it takes me back to an, an article that had a huge influence on my own thinking. And that's an extraordinary old one by McNeil in 1974, called The Many Futures of Contract. And in that argument, he argues very little exchange in our economies actually takes place through pure spot market, what we think of as the market mechanism exchange. So, sharp in, sharp out, transacting. And even then, that transacting is embedded in an environment that has a common unit of exchange, a currency, a language. Um, And then usually in modern economies, we think about it is also having a series of of rules about taxes that you pay, labor regulations, environmental practices, product liability, all those things that you factor into your normal, how do I set up my value-adding activities and how do I capture a return on that? So I think for me, we're really drawing a distinction here between those decisions in our strategic decision-making that directly affect our value adding activity and then actions that are designed to shape the broader political social environment in which those broader rules and regulations are being set and enforced. And I think there is also an implicit assumption here that that's very much about what big companies do. So trying to influence what's going on in the setting of those regimes of legislation, regulation, policy. And in fact, one of the things Chris and I talked about was that in many locations, most firms don't engage in that at all. So they are competing, competing to outperform their rivals simply by following the rules as they are set. And they're relatively small firms that just simply take all that as a given. So if we think about it, we can can look across all sorts of different locations in India, micro enterprises, so those have got fewer than 10 employees, have the largest share of employment. In Canada, 10 million people are employed in firms that have fewer than 100 employees. So in most locations, even here in the UK, there are about 5.58 million small and medium-sized enterprises, And there's roughly 3,760 firms that have more than 500 employees. So if we really think about how crucial non-market strategies are, the ability to shape and influence that broader political dynamic and the social actors, for most firms, they're not big enough to really be engaged in it and they're usually not engaged in it. They're engaged in thinking directly about their value-earning activities and how they influence those. Some of them are also selling on longer-term arrangements, so they're not in a pure market, either to obtain their employees or to sell their product. Um, But really, most firms, as opposed to very large corporates that may be across multiple locations, most firms are looking at very, very narrow windows of definition about where those trade-off decisions are what the actions they're engaging in, and they're not attempting in any way, shape or form to influence political and social actors around them. And if they are, they're really engaging in marketing. How do they reshape consumer preferences to prefer their products because they might be slightly more environmentally friendly or they might have better employment practices. So if we then shift to thinking about if non-market really means those actions that are designed to change the dynamics of the power structure, that are there to reshape legislation, regulation, policy, whether at a local level, whether at a national level, the firm is really facing a trade-off. And it's facing a trade-off as to whether it invests its resources in the normal value-adding activities that it engages in and the actions around those, or whether it's going to start trying to influence government, regulators, local council officials through those political actions and social actions such as lobbying, networking, and then shifting into the darker side of it and that's bribery and corruption. And I think when we think about looking at those sorts of decisions, the trade-off decisions become really, really difficult. Um, Obviously you can be associated with regimes, which are less than favorable, less than desirable, and they can have knock on effects if you're in a multi locational organization. You can also be impacted by extraterritoriality. So if you're engaging in bribery and corruption to tilt the playing field specifically to you, as opposed to trying to help an industry association write better legislation or impact that regulation then you can also be affected by how other locations decide they're going to uh, assess those activities. So just like Jonathan, I looked at the paper this morning, Ericsson's share price has fallen 9% today because they've revealed that internal investigations have picked up that they probably paid ISIS uh, significant bribes in Iraq to undertake their activities.
0: let right. me stop right there. Thank you so much. It's eight minutes. Uh, right. Let's go. on to the thought. Uh, now it's going to be the second round. I think we're going with uh, Christos this time,
4: right? Okay, thank you very much. I will repeat in one minute the 10 points I made against, and then I will explicate some, uh, elaborate and expli- an answer also some of the questions that appear indirectly at, at the chat. Non-market strategies are a result of institutional failure, and importantly, they also help institutional failure. This is because they they create unrelated diversification of organizational capabilities. Firms are not about doing political things. Additional investments and costs. Incentive to pay low taxes as a result of this end or pass the cost to the consumer, hence inflation. Relative power-safe distortion of competition vis-a-vis firms that don't do this, and as Elizabeth said, 95% of firms don't have the resources to do this, lower incentives to innovate as a result, lobbying regulatory capture and corruption, collusive behaviors between big business, big government, and sometimes big labor, abdication of state responsibilities, erosion of key comparative advantages of governments. One of them, the key of them is legitimization and paying for infrastructure through taxes, gradually to a fiscal crisis of the state that we are already observing and higher demands on business to actually do non-market strategies, therefore leading to a vicious circle. My proposition is that non-market strategies and collusive state ME relations undermine sustainability and introduce a big business, big government, and sometimes big labor-led and favoring type of democracy, hence over time, to senescent capitalism, they are bad for society. They are bad for SMEs and competition. But eventually, and that answers a question that was put at the chat. At the chat, for big business too, this is because they are gradually required to undertake even more governmental functions. Eventually, raising the question: Should they also have their own armies? Like, for example, returning back to the East Indian Company, which in India was running its own armies. Non-market strategies often seek to have their cake, one's cake and eat it. Those people who want to know about non-market strategies and the role of the government, I suggest you go and watch the film Captain Phillips. In that film, the whole fleet, the whole US fleet is going to Somalia waters or international waters near Somalia to simply protect an American vessel from pirates. I have no clue what is the cost of this operation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was in the hundreds of millions. Who could fund this? Companies. In all, to save capitalism, we should all seek to wither non-market strategies. Supporting non-market strategies is shooting ourselves on the foot. The solution is to plan for pluralism, diversity, and positive innovation fostering competition through the strengthening of the commons. Read the work, for example of Eleanor Ostrom. Comparative advice ba- based division of labor between market, firm, state, and the commons, alongside the separation of powers of government, has always been the key to liberal democracy and for
7: very good reasons. It's best if we don't mess with them.
5: That's all. Perfect. Uh,
3: Who's next? Jonathan, would you like to go? Sure. Uh, Thank you. I heard with great interest the arguments of our uh, opposing colleagues here. And I'm embarrassed to point out that I believe that at least one of them has misread the motion before us. The motion before us is not whether non-market strategies should be critical to overall competitive strategies, not whether non-market strategies we would like to be part of overall competitive strategies. It's whether they are critical to overall competitive strategies. And I believe the opposing team is living in, I don't know how to say it any differently, a fantasy land, a nirvana, some kind of socialist dream. I'm not sure what it is. Our team is agnostic about whether non-market strategies are good or bad for society. We frankly don't care whether we, from a values-based perspective, thinks that firms should or should not invest in them. We're just looking at the cold, hard reality. What are they doing? Every large organization in the world is cognizant of, is responding to, and is investing in the non-market environment in which they operate, and interacting with the non-market actors that are uh, creating sometimes challenges, sometimes opportunities for them. Um, So in our view, it's it's not a matter of a normative question of whether we think this is good or bad or indifferent or ugly. It's simply a matter of the cold hard reality, what is happening out there. With regard to uh, the other opponent, I believe uh, Professor Maitland overstates the purpose of non-market strategies it is not only and frankly rarely to change the power dynamics of a governmental system. It's often to buffer the firm from the nefarious actions of that uh, governmental system, especially as we would find in the emerging markets of the world where we know from governments, uh, from, from history, that governments can and do uh, uh, have these kinds of uh, impacts and, and, and strategies. Um, I guess the last point that I would make is that I agree with the argument of the first opponent that non-market strategies run the risk of essentially a government takeover of the private sector absorbing responsibilities that we would normally and naturally vest in, in governments, but they're doing it. Private regulation is a real thing. Private sector actors and NGOs and others are constructing rules and norms and expectations and we need only look at the team standards, uh, codes, and regulatory arrangements between and among these actors to recognize that it is happening. It is real, whether we like it or not. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Now we got uh, Helena.
6: Uh, I think it's me. <laughs> oh, um, okay. That's all right, we'll, we'll keep going. And I think, I think Jonathan makes a really interesting point. He says it's happening around us all the time and that's absolutely correct. And as I've said before, I think we need to draw a distinction between those actions that we might think of as based on trying to affect our pricing decisions, our product differentiation decisions, our decisions about where we locate our activities or firms do. And whether it's critical that we have non-market strategies in those types of decisions. And absolutely, in some locations, when you are thinking about what is your performance outcome, thinking about what directly impacts your value-adding activities, which is a market-based decision ultimately, what do I price, what do I differentiate, how do I sell it, where do I sell it, is impacted by having to, as you say, buffer from the actions of others or indeed obtain that licence to operate the legitimacy type issue. And those are to me market strategies. They're directly inputs into my trade-off decisions about what the firm is doing. The non-market aspect, where we decide to influence and co-opt or uh, lobby political and social actors to achieve a change in that environment, that's where the problem comes from. And I think it's very hard for firms to start trying to alter that environment unless they're directly looking through the lens of their own value-adding activities. The minute it becomes allocating your resources and your time to, can we change the overall power framework, most firms aren't there. So I don't think it's critical to competitive strategy because most firms aren't there, with all due respect. This is the domain of big corporates. For big corporates in a given location, the danger is that you are simply changing the rules for everyone. So you may have a minor impact on your overall competitiveness, but you're trying to create an environment which will be a relatively common outcome for all players in that industry, that segment, or that economy. If you are trying to change those rules to influence the outcome specifically for your firm, well, that's where we move into the dark side. And I think that's where firms heavily run the danger of either directly engaging in bribery and corruption or undue influence, which can damage the reputation of the firm. And I think those types of strategies, if they're not looked at through the lens specifically of how it's directly going to impact our ability to create, capture and sustain value, then become a real problem and are not critical to the overall competitive strategy. In fact, they will damage it. And it's especially true for big corporates that are in multi locations because those attempts to change the rules specifically for the firm versus the overall context are the ones that lead to these dark side type allegations, reputation damaging, and ultimately lowering the performance of the organization. You can just see through the size of the fines that companies like Glencore, Ericsson, et cetera, have been paying me. And so I think saying that you need to be aware of that broader environment. Is still part of your market strategy. Then trying to alter that environment specifically for your firm, I think becomes a highly problematic strategy that shouldn't be critical to the way you are trying to achieve your competitive outcomes because it is far too complex to manage those types of outcomes. Perfect, thank you. And now is Elena,
0: thank you.
5: Thank you. I want to pick up on one point that Elizabeth is making, which is this continued emphasis that these are large firms that are engaged in in non-market strategies. And I just don't think it's true. Um, It's easier to know about the large firms, but certainly I can think of two examples of firms that that are very small. Um, The one is a a South African uh, plantation that it, uh, moved, a, set up a plantation in, in East Africa. Its first international venture, um, a, a big deal for them. East Africa's climate is wonderful for growing trees. Um, they also set up a sawmill quite close because it's very expensive to transport pure logs. Um, it takes time for trees to grow, and um, and as they had finally gotten logs that were big enough that they were able to to take them to the sawmill. Um, they, they, They piloted it. They tried made sure the factory worked. And the next week there was a toll road on the kilometer of road that separated where the trucks came out with the logs and the sawmill. And they had to engage with government and they had to shape and they had to do all kinds of things. And And what had happened is that they had had, of course, uh, central government was was very pleased, FDI, beneficiation, and local government wasn't talking there. They engaged in non-market strategy and engagement to support the creation capture of of value. Um, Because the context in which they were, there was was extraction. It's very obvious. Um, But there doesn't need to be, ill will on the side of of government, I think. Um, Another example in South Africa, the way that fresh produce is is bought and sold is through municipal markets, where um, buyers and sellers go and they they buy tomatoes and apples. Um, The sellers buy a commission, that commission is supposed to be used for upgrading the quality of the market. And um, But they've not been doing it because the municipalities have been mismanaged. Um, there have been many demands on even the, the better managed ones. And therefore, a group of, of fruit producers set up an alternative um, market in which they are making sure that the cold chain is maintained, that the hygiene standards are maintained so that they could sell to the higher end retailers in South Africa and access the export market. So by by just about every description, this is a market strategy. This is about creating a market, Um, except that the direct trigger for that was the fact that the the institutional environment with which there had been a lot of consultation and and, and, and attempts to, 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 to get them to perform better they chose to to set up to dilute their capabilities because that was necessary for them to capture the value. This was a small group of of farmers who invested in an additional venture um, who felt that they had the capabilities of understanding what the EU was looking for. So so it feels to me that uh, we know about non-market strategies of Microsoft or whoever, but in fact, these strategies happen everywhere when 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 it is in the interest of firms to improve their overall competitive strategy to engage with the political or societal context of business competition, which is exactly the de- definition from a et al. This is what the definition is of non-market strategies. So so just just in closing, I don't want yeah,
0: to let me just stop you there. I'll leave oh, okay. your point, please hold your uh, point for the third and final round. In the third uh, final round, I would like to propose that the order is Jonathan, Elizabeth, Elena, and Christos. Is that okay with you? Okay, Sorry, yeah, That's fine, that's fine. Perfect. Uh, let, let's start with the second rebuttals with Jonathan again. And uh, huh. Jonathan has a fan following in, in the chat room.
3: <laughs> okay, uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, let me maybe just respond to to a couple of comments of our colleagues. First of all, I wanna clarify that non-market strategy does not always mean proactive strategy. It often means defensive or protective strategy. So I don't think Elizabeth's distinguishing between these two types of non-market and lumping one in the market category and the other in the non-market category is is accurate. In fact, when we think about one of the, the largest challenges that firms face in the international environment, it's political risk. Sometimes they're engaging in defensive strategies to buffet themselves from the impact of political risk, but sometimes they're using quite appropriate interactions with governments to try to ensure that they are not unfairly harmed or or, uh, detrimentally uh, uh, impacted by uh, political risk. Um, I think the COVID pandemic is a perfect environment to observe how both non-market and non-market environments and strategies interact. We know we need only think about the distribution of uh, masks, of PPE, of vaccines. Who gets what? Of governments closing down and opening up. Of supply chains. It is all mixed together. But we can identify some elements that are most integrally related to the political and social context. And I and I think the final word should go to one of the one of the founders of the whole concept. Or, per, of, or the whole construct, if you will, of non-market. And that's David Barron in his famous uh, article uh, entitled Integrated Strategy, Market and Non-Market Components. Uh, and in the beginning of that article, he, he says the following, which I think just says it all here. The environment of business is composed of market and non-market components. And any approach, any approach to strategy formulation must integrate both mon- market and non-market considerations. Case closed.
7: Okay, Uh, Elizabeth.
6: Oh, it's me, sorry. Terrible, sorry for that. Uh, In many ways, I agree with what Jonathan just said, that you need to integrate both the market and the non-market into our strategies. I would say, however, that responses by firms to things that happen in their environment are not always about their strategy. Because remember, your strategy is your projection into the future of what you were going to do. And sometimes you just respond. Sometimes things happen and the firm responds. And I, I don't think that's about your strategy. Sometimes that's just pure panic. But when we think about that distinction between the market and the non-market, To me, when firms are thinking about their competitive market strategy, they are thinking about those things that impact their direct ability to capture return on their activities. And sometimes they have to buffer themselves from the actions of others, whether they're rivals, whether they are powerful suppliers, whether they are labor unions, whether they are government. But those are directly factored into where they locate the value-adding activities, the design of those activities, and then where they sell the output. Their interactions outside that immediate web of what's impacting directly the value-adding activities, that really is then being moving into their non-market strategies. How are we influencing that broader environment? And I think that clarity is where we need to get to in, in thinking about, is that something that creates greater competitive, advantage for the firm or not and in some settings maybe it does the ability of some firms to reshape that environment and to allow it to benefit them can be very very powerful sometimes that's through perverse means such as corruption and bribery or manipulation of weak governments sometimes it's through industry associations or legitimate lobbying which in some countries is not seen as legitimate but I think we have to be very, very clear that that is a very small subset of firms in particular institutional environments. And as a general statement, saying that you should see things through that non-market behavior and then look at the market strategy, then that doesn't make sense. So often non-market isn't even there. Is it critical to overall competitive strategy? Maybe occasionally for some firms, but I don't think that actually proves the entire point. I think it creates an exception.
0: Thank you. Uh, now, uh, Helena, you got uh, three minutes.
5: Thank you. Um, when I first encountered the term non-market, and this was obviously before I saw the the, the original text, I was totally baffled why it's called market and non-market and not labor and non-labor or or some other element of of business. I couldn't understand why the market was singled out to be the reference point against which the rest was measured. And when I reflected about it, I I want to agree with an earlier point that Elizabeth made that, that basically markets are institutions. They are constructed by shared values and understandings and rules of the game. And in developed economies where most scholarship happens, markets are pretty well-functioning institutions. And and, and I think the danger exists that people think that this particular institution is really the defining institution. And we will lump all other types of institutional arrangements and configurations in in the non-market strategy. But if one looks at a world in which institutions generally are not well functioning, markets don't always function very well. Labor doesn't function very well. Governments aren't particularly competent. So, so what one does as a firm, one enters this social context, this, this political context, and, and you try and make money. And you try and make money by educating the labor force that needs to work for you, by trying to develop uh, a a market for your products, by trying to work with governments to educate governments about latest technologies that that you've you've heard about. And everybody does it, not the large firms alone, but if you are entering into a weak institutional environment, that's simply what you need to do. You need to have this portfolio of strategies to improve your ability to compete in that market. So for me, it feels as if the very concept of non-market strategy is possible only because the notion of the market is so central. But indeed, I think once we start deconstructing, we realize that, that firms are not special actors that are exempt from sort of all kinds of things except the marketplace. They are themselves products of an integrated institutional educational environment. If I have one more minute before ILGAS keeps me, uh, it keeps, gets me quiet, um, the notion that most research in the world is weird, western, educated, individualistic, rich and democratic countries, that is the minority of the world. And I think we need to be very careful when we discuss something like non-market strategies to to bear in mind that this whole theoretical perspective originated in a weird world. I'm closing.
0: Thank you. Okay, Uh, Christos.
4: Okay, thanks very briefly. I'm hearted by the agreement on some uh, key issues. Uh, I would like to observe that uh, if Hayek, Friedman and Zingales were called socialists, they might decide to commit suicide, but that's a different matter. Let me say that there is no confusion here in that my argument was or the argument where the point we were trying to debate is whether NMS, non-market strategies, are about sustainable competitive advantage, which we all take to be the aim of business in strategic management and international strategic management. Now SCA is as much about S as it is about CA. I might say it's more about S sustainable than CA. It is in this context that my argument was that non-market strategies favor a very small minority of big firms in the short run and undermine their sustainable competitive advantage in the longer run through unrelated diversification of their capabilities, anticipation of their resources, as well as a race to the bottom where everybody is basically specializing in how to outcompete others to lobby governments, et cetera, et cetera. In this context, firms in particular, as well as everybody else, are better off without non market strategies, not just on normative grounds, but also in terms of the S in the SCA, hence the answer to the question. In this context, what appears to be normative is positive and both normative and positive go hand in hand. And therefore that is non-market strategies are not creating sustainable competitive advantage, which was the question. Thank you.
0: Perfect. You got one minute to spare on your section. Now, uh, I normally don't do this, but um... At the AOM, uh, we're going to have another panel discussion on politicized firms, and you just mentioned Zingales. We're going to have Kazura, Devini, Zingales, and Delmas discuss whether firms are getting more politicized uh, than they should be, and if it is going to be the new norm, uh, whether firms should be political actors versus economic actors, which is uh, along your uh, argument. Now, I would like to open the floor for everyone else. Uh, I've seen some uh, arguments in the chat box, but uh, maybe for the sake of time and for convenience, uh, if I can have these people um, uh, join the conversation, unmute and uh, join the conversation, uh, it will be perfect, instead of us going through the uh, chat comments.
1: Right. Under the reactions, uh, there is a raise hand hand function, and that will move your picture to the head of uh, the screen. So if you would like to speak, uh, please raise your hand. Okay, I see a hand from Cynthia. Please go ahead.
8: Yes, hello. Uh, was a very interesting debate. Uh, uh, I am a kind of fascinated about the topic itself, but I think when we are talking about uh, competitive advantage, especially when you talk about. To st- sustainable competitive advantage, we have to separate non-market strategies uh, involved with the political side when we are dealing with governments and especially what is important and critical to uh, work in different uh, locations, such as emerging markets. So I do believe uh, uh, context matter, but also we have to consider the social aspect of non-market strategies when we are uh, actually thinking about the partnerships of the firm with NGOs and the third sector itself. And in that sense, I do believe in the short term, it will not guarantee competitive advantage, but maybe in the long term might impact the firm's activities as well. So in that sense, I'm not sure if I'm for or against, because depending on the length of the analysis, I would be saying that uh, it might change my view on this debate. Right.
1: So Jonathan has his hand raised.
3: Yes, I, I, I think I, I want to agree with Cynthia and also agree with with a point that Christos made earlier, which is that it could well be that the aggregate value creation of non-market strategies is, is say, null or even negative. But it can also be the case that firms feel compelled to engage in non market strategies for reasons of parity, for reasons of responding to what firms in their industry are doing. And so it's not necessarily to create significant additional value in their operations, it's to protect the value that they already have from being undermined because other firms may be lobbying more, as Christoph said. So I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to necessarily argue that non-market strategies are significant value creators to acknowledge that they play a critical role in competitive strategy, even if that role is to protect or secure value that has already been created through, for example, uh, filing patents and other kinds of protection of intellectual property.
7: Can I
5: say something? Yes, absolutely, Helena. Um, I think there, there are many, there are many firms, firms that have products that we've learned to be problematic, that are not actually adding value, that actually are destroying value. If we just think about the upward crisis in the U.S., and I think that in the same way that, that non market, str- that, that what firms' products are or the markets that they target could be positive or negative as a net for society, it really depends on, on, on the nature of the non market strategy. So a few years ago in South Africa, um, there was a huge problem with indebtedness. Uh, people were taking on more debt than what, what they could handle. And, and in the end, there was a, a protection of, of of consumable past, which is really if if you lend people money more than what they what you can anticipate they can pay back in their formulas for it, then you unprotect it, offer. you will not Please. get your money back. So so it feels to me that that, that was a net value creator for, for society. So I don't think that the, the link is the one is good and the one is bad as in market and non-market. There's good and bad in both. All
1: right, now Christos has his hand raised.
4: Okay, very quickly, just to say that I agree with Jonathan. I just would like to add, however, that we should not think that firms are just responding. Sometimes they start by responding, but eventually they may be creating conditions that are leading to further non-market strategies. And we should be aware of this. I go back to the original question, though. What I try to answer is not a normative issue, although normative and positive can be very interconnected, but to answer whether non-market strategies eventually in the long-term help sustainable competitive advantage for the firms themselves. And the answer is that, frankly, in the medium to long-term, they do not. They do in the short term, in a minority of firms, and that may be creating a race to the bottom. So from a positive point of view, there is no sustainable competitive advantage by the firm. A, it it leads to unrelated diversification of their capabilities. B, to a competitive disadvantage between capitalist and cooperative firms because in cooperative firms, the managers were always politicians to start with. So they have a comparative advantage in actually going to, having close relationships with governments, et cetera. C, to dissipation of resources, because if everybody paying bribes to put it crudely or doing other lobbying in some other ways, then for crying out loud, everybody loses out in the end. That is the firms themselves. So if you focus on sustainable competitive advantage, it's not a matter of normative versus positive. It is a positive analysis that it does not support sustainable competitive advantage. Of course, it does help with short-term competitive advantage, but I did not think that was the question. The question about aggregate value creation is very, very huge and very, very important, and with that I agree mostly with Jonathan. Thank you.
1: All right. Fernando has his hands raised. Fernando?
7: Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was trying, trying to unmute myself. So. A uh, great conversation. I have uh, a question slash comment. Um, do you guys, I don't know if you know the, the open hardware differentiation between power and market. And I And I'd like to know if you agree that that differentiation could help to define what is a market and a non-market strategy But the question that I have is, uh, and I don't think you have touched on that directly, is uh, what about the size of the government, meaning how the size of the government influences the importance or non-importance of uh, non-market strategies? Thank you very much. Christos.
4: Did you ask me?
1: Yes, you had your hand raised and Jonathan also. Is that a response to Fernando?
4: I was trying to to, to actually take it down. So I'm happy with somebody else to answer, although I could, but I just don't want to. uh...
3: Perhaps I can just make a quick comment then. So to me, if a government is large and powerful, then firms have to deal with it because it is exerting a lot of pressure or constraint or influence. If a government is small and weak, The firm will take advantage of that and influence the government so either way non-market is important in either context and everything in between and i think if we could think of of other continua we could also make an argument that there's really no place where non-market is not relevant
1: and elizabeth also a response to fernando
6: yeah and i think there is a a comment in the chat sort of saying it's not just about government I think that's absolutely correct and I I go back to what I started with and that is we work in institutional environments and the dynamics of those environments are basically who gets to set the rules and who enforces them and when you start to play in actually writing those rules and enforcing those rules as a business then you're diverting your resources to engaging in something that's a long way from thinking about how do you realize competitive strategy in what will ultimately be a market in some way, shape or form. And that I think is is where we sort of are drawing this distinction between market strategies and non-market strategies. Some firms have to buffer themselves. Some firms have to factor in that there are very weak institutional environments and they rely on non-formal legal mechanisms to achieve outcomes. But if that is the basis on which you're attempting to achieve your competitive advantage, then as Christos has said, it can be very short-term and in the long-term, is it sustainable? We know regimes fall. We know that institutional environments are dynamic. And if you are caught in one playing a particular game that isn't directly linked to your value-adding activities being valuable in and of themselves, but because you're manipulating the environment, then that does not strike me as a long-term sustainable proposition. In other words, something that can support a competitive strategy that has long-term returns for whoever is funding that organization.
1: Okay, so I also see Charlie Stevens with his hand up, Um, but I don't know if that's gonna take us away from the thread that Fernando started and to which crystals would like to take down uh, Christos, do you want to jump in before we may potentially leave the thread with Charlie?
4: What I have already mentioned very much in passing is Stephen Heimer's analysis about the transplantation of the vertical division of labor with, with, within multinationals to a vertical division of labor within the world as a whole. In this context, Heimer had observed, in my view correctly, that we, in effect, we have a situation where we have strong states versus weak states with differential bargaining power. So in effect, de facto, firms will have to actually react uh, more to strong states than to less strong states. My reference to Captain Phillips is a a, a case in point. Uh, For example, how do you deal with, uh, uh, with China when you have to rely so much on its huge markets of course, it's a, it's a different matter. You have to play ball. The question again is not whether you have or you don't have to play ball. The question is does this create SCA? And as I said, it does create CA in the short run for a small minority of firms, but in the medium run, it's not S and it messes up everybody else.
1: Okay. So We do have a reference provided uh, on the open primer piece, Uh, so we're going to close this thread and move to Charlie, but feel free to uh, tap into that resource in the chat. Go ahead, Charlie.
2: Thanks. I just wanted to thank everyone for a really interesting debate. Uh, I'm an international business guy, so I I admit I'm on the uh, the fore side of the debate, but there was a lot of of conversation that that really stimulated uh, my thinking. Uh, And in particular, I I was really thinking about how the more the conversation emerged, it seems like we really, I think in IB and in strategy too, have this bias towards thinking about larger firms, about thinking about national level governments, uh, about thinking about developing countries when we're talking about issues of political risk and things like that. Um, and it seems like it is a bit of an open question in terms of, you know, what do small firms do in terms of non market strategies? You know, because uh, what happens at the, the local level as well? Because, you know, again, attend a city council meeting and, you know, lots of small business owners are there in, in developed countries also trying to influence the political environment for sure uh, to help their firms. And it, it seems to uh, just a final comment that we need more performance data on this issue too. So we're, we're hearing a lot about, you know, whether this is good for competitive advantage, whether it's not. Uh, but I'm not aware of a whole lot of studies that really translate, you know, non-market strategy into performance data. And it just seems like there's a lot of, a lot of different room for more research on all of these issues, but uh, really fascinating debate, just wanted to say. That.
1: All right. Any more comments from the audience? Guests, you guess you want to cold call some people?
0: I am actually doing that. <laughs> when I'm uh, in the chat box, I'm cold-chatting cold, cold with them. Um, well, um, yeah. so far uh, when, I'm look- when I'm looking at the tally, uh, most people were uh, for the motion. I'm actually very much, very strongly against the motion. And uh, the opening of uh, uh, Christos, it was a very powerful opening. And Jonathan's rebuttal was very powerful. Uh, these are two very distinct uh, thoughts. I'm really surprised that uh, this many people was, uh, were voting for for the motion, uh, especially coming from the business school, whether your IP or strategy uh, is truly been more strongly on the against side, I'm really surprised, but uh, we got two hands. Uh, let me just uh, mute myself. Okay,
1: so Li uh, Yuan would go first, followed by Faisal. Hello
9: everyone, um, what a very wonderful debate in the early morning. Um,
1: I have uh, I
9: just have one one the comment on the on both the market on the market. So it's based on what I heard in the debate, it seems that the purpose, either market or non-market, they're performance-based as a competitiveness um, or competitive advantage. But but I wonder, will any strategy take care of, take care of any of the really three P bottom line now, like the planet and people? It seems that non-market strategy still doesn't take care of the, the other P. And then it seems everything is still focused on the people. Maybe I misunderstand something. Well, this is basically um, I think it's added to a little bit of my confusion after the the debate. Um, but overall, I, I really like it. Great, thank you very much. Right.
1: Jonathan, is this uh, the triple bottom line response, or should I? Okay, go
3: ahead. Yes, yes, it is. So I, w- I would just observe, and again, I'm. This is not an endorsement or repudiation either one, but it is. It, it, it is the case that although the UN sustainable development goals were really intended for consumption by governments, literally hundreds and hundreds of companies and universities, I might add, have adopted them as the rubric and the mechanism through which they advance those other two Ps. So I don't think it's the case that non-market strategies don't or couldn't address those other two Ps. And if you take seriously what companies and universities and others have said they are doing with regard to the UN SDGs—they are—they are contributing not just to the one P, but the other two as well.
1: Okay, Beigel, would you like to go ahead?
8: Yeah. Uh, so th- uh, it wasn't—it is interesting uh, debate. I have two questions for uh, the for the motion side, and the uh, the first one is. Um, uh, first of all, how would uh, non-market uh, strategy contribute to the industry overall? Uh, I mean by that, how it contribute to uh, motivate innovation and uh, the evolution of the of the industry. And my second question about um, uh, uh, does non-market uh, do non-market strategies uh, account for um, conflict of interest and which might lead to the uh, agency costs? So how would non-market strategies can um, mitigate and avoid uh, the agency costs in in this case?
7: Maybe I could just remark
3: briefly on the first part of the question, but I think we should invite the against team to chime in here too, especially in the second. So it is the case that firms often advance their non-market strategies through collective means by joining together with other companies within the industry, often through an industry association or some other mechanism, while simultaneously and concurrently advancing their own agenda. An example would be in a regulated industry like telecommunications, where firms as a collective might advance a policy agenda with the Relevant regulatory authority in, in whatever country in a way that would benefit the industry overall,
1: while at the same
3: time competing with each other for license, for bandwidth license, uh, and so doing, you know, engaging in a rivalrous activity. So, the, the bottom line on the first question is I think they do both, and both can contribute to either the overall standing of the industry and. And, and can also then contribute to the standing of a company within the industry. Maybe the maybe Helena or somebody on the other team would like to address the second question.
5: I'm, I'm covered with what, what you said. For me, the central thing is that um, I really think that non-market strategy is so closely intertwined with market strategy that it's very hard for me to to conceptually gauge some, so if you do non-market, how does it affect market to to separate them out to to identify which ones are good versus bad? Or um, I really, in in my experience, they're so closely intertwined that 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 many of those distinctions are based on a on, on a false dichotomy.
1: Okay, and Christos on this point,
4: and later we will get uh, Sam Lee. Very quickly to say that I struggle to understand how these things are intertwined. For in general, when, for example, 97% of businesses all over the world are small and medium-sized enterprises and nano enterprises, and they really they simply don't have money to survive the day. I happened at one stage to run one of them. I didn't have time to think anything else other than the next two hours, as opposed to actually how to lobby government or to do non-market strategies for a crying out loud. All I was trying is to get some, something on the table and a couple of coffees on the table. I was running a small bistro. And frankly, the last thing I could think of is dealing with governments. And this is 97, 98% of global business. Coming to the issue about agency cost is almost by definition, by definition, the case that if you have an extra actor to deal with, you are increasing transaction costs. Now, the issue of agency costs, which are usually associated with intra-organizational costs is slightly more complex, but centuries paribus one would expect that it increases also agency costs because the more transaction costs you have to deal with, the more potential intra-organizational conflicts the different opinions you may have, which actually is likely to enhance also intra organizational agency costs. So both in terms of transaction and agency costs, they are likely to increase. So in terms of overall efficiency, it's a mess. But fundamentally, I did not try to make this point, but to make the point whether it does lead to sustainable competitive advantage.
1: All right. So I see we have about five minutes until uh, the end time. So I want to get Ilga's prepared. Uh, if you have final concluding remarks, uh, in the meanwhile we can take one more comment. And Sam, here you go.
9: Thank you all for your great debate. And actually, I do learn a lot from this debate. But again, you know, uh, I think you know what about should it be the call, and what should it be about additionally. So firstly, without market, right? So there will be non-market policies will be, never exist. So there should be the market, but who are the market? Are these the small firms or the big firms? So the fir- small firms and the big firms, they are the core of the economy, right? So it can be like our foot. Without foot, we, we can't walk, right? So non-market strategy should be something like the additional things, like the policies, like the, the community things, NGOs, regulations, logistics. That should be something additionally could be regarded as, as our shoes. With the shoes, we can walk faster, but the, without shoes, we cannot walk. So that's some about my comment. So if you, are, and if you are not agree with me, you can just against it. Thank you. Well, we've
0: got a couple of minutes. Thank you so much for your participation. Uh, uh, while we're closing, uh, if you can please again, uh, in the chat box, Uh, vote for whether you are on the for side or against side. I would like to make sure that I count uh, uh, sway votes. Uh, So far, it will not be too difficult because against is very low. Uh, I just need one more person to uh, move to the against side so that they can win, but.
4: um, I can do this for you, (laughs) Ilgas.
0: Thank you, you're a great sport. Uh, thank you so much, Christos, uh, especially after your paper um, uh, to, to be on this side and make this argument, this was a great sportsmanship. <clears throat> uh, there were many different uh, arguments for the, for, we, we talked about the size of the firm, the location of the firm, their uh, ideologies, their uh, economic mentalities, uh, and obviously the, the motion in these the debates are set uh, in a very straightforward, very sharp way. Uh, what does it mean? why does a person put R or critical, right? Uh, these are very pointed uh, arguments. Uh, this was very, very uh, helpful uh, for, uh, for for us. I mean, these are the things exactly what we should be discussing. Um, But uh, the opening and the uh, first rebuttal uh, from Jonathan, uh, from Chris and Dan, uh, Jonathan was very important. Uh, The rules of the game are changing obviously, and the role of the firms as economic actors are changing. And uh, this is quite salient. Uh, This this is something that we should be thinking a bit more on. Uh, It is very difficult to argue that firms only do uh, economic business. Uh, they are actually doing a lot of social things. Uh, this is quite unnatural to, to some people. The same debate uh, happens in the uh, economic circles, uh, the AEA, uh, AEA uh, conference. And their perspective is, uh, you know, are we going to have a new uh, theory of the firm? And uh, this is a new debate. Thank you so much for your participation. We've got uh, two minutes. Uh, if you can, uh, if it is still inside you, if it's burning you, please say it out loud and get it over with or whatever hold your peace
4: on this one.
3: I said it in the chat, but I just want to commend the against team. I think they had a far tougher challenge in front of them and they they uh, executed brilliantly and admirably. So congratulations to Christos and and Elizabeth.
1: Yeah.
8: And so all, Thank you so much for participating in this and sharing your insights. I think it was a great thought-provoking debate. Um, and I know all of our STR members, thank you for your time and your insights. So thank you very much. Thank you, ILGAS, as well. Thank you for organizing this.
4: Thank you, everybody. And thank you, ILGAS. That was excellent. And thank you, Jonathan, for being so generous. Thank you very much, all. Thanks.